Welcome back to the Discovering Forestry podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Corey Lofi, alongside the Arborjet Joe Aitken. Hey, Joe. Happy September. How the heck are you? Uh, I'm good, buddy. I'm good. Uh, busy. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a fun time, and I think we've been talking on the previous podcast, uh, how we enjoy this time of the year, how we enjoy fall. I, this is my favorite time of the year. Um, got a lot of things going on. Uh, Michigan Tree Climbing Championships uh, this weekend, the 17th, 18th, and 19th. Um, I'm just, we're just rocking and rolling. We had some, you know, we got some following up to do on our last previous podcast. And um, I know you got someone pretty special to uh, introduce tonight. So I'm really excited to, to see where we're going to go tonight. Absolutely. And this is a fun time of year for, for a lot of us uh, listeners outside of work. Yeah, it's pretty to drive around and look at the trees, look at the senescence, look at the changing in the colors, all that. But a lot of people this time of year start to kind of migrate towards the woods in an effort to do some hunting or fishing or, or retreats or whatever you need to do um, as we're kind of buttoning up summer and moving forward into the winter. So uh, one of my friends who I, I haven't had the opportunity to really catch up or spend much time with in the past few years is John Stumpy Staggerwalt. He's calling in from uh, northern Wisconsin, northwestern Wisconsin. And I think we're going to have a really good conversation. I think we're going to really tie a lot of things together. And uh, so without, without further ado, John, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thanks for having me, Corey. Thanks for having me, Joe. Awesome. Yeah. Good. Hey, you know, um, well, Corey and I were talking when he when uh, we he asked we should bring you on. We're talking about we we kind of been drifting into more of the traditional forestry, and if you catch our last podcast, we even gotten some of the history of the uh, the uh, uh, traditional forestry back to the Paul Bunyan and Johnny Appleseed days. So uh, we'll keep that in mind as we kind of chat and move on. But um, great to have you, John. Looking forward to. Uh, a nice chat on uh, what you exactly do for a living. So, good. so John, if you, if you wouldn't mind, now I introduced you as John Stumpy Stagerwald. If you wouldn't mind giving some of the listeners a background. Um, uh, I, I could explain the, the Stumpy part of my, my name, my nickname, pretty, pretty simply, pretty, pretty eloquently. Um, it's because I'm short. <laughs> and it, being short's a bit of a family trait and actually – um, going back to my grandfather, his his nickname was Shorty, uh, Edward Shorty Staggerwald. And to get your to your question about you know what was my journey in forestry, how did I get involved in forestry? I largely have my grandfather, Edward Shorty Staggerwald, to thank for that. Um, he was a um, he was a forester by trade. Uh, his father before him was in the concrete business uh, in in Chicago, Illinois. Um, but he took a slightly different path in life. Um, he graduated with his master's degree from Michigan State University. Um, during World War II, he was actually General MacArthur's staff forester. Um, thinking about Japanese reconstruction, they needed foresters on staff to look at aerial photographs, reconnaissance information, and think about how they're going to go about uh, the reconstruction effort of Japan post-war. Of course, looking at natural resources as far as how they can, um, you know, support an economy uh, to help with that reconstruction effort. So he was, he was actually, he was in it in forestry. 
Um, and after the war, he came back to the States, uh, married my, my grandmother he met during the war, and moved to Wisconsin. And in the early days in Wisconsin, uh, it's currently called the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources uh, as the state agency um, that manages natural resources in the state. But back in the day, it was the Wisconsin um, uh, Conservation Department. And he was the chief air photo interpolator for the conservation department after the war, uh, basically built upon those skills that he got during the war, doing air photo interpolation for the reconstruction effort. Um, he eventually hung his own shingle out in 1955, uh, getting kind of fed up with uh, state work. And he founded the second uh, private consulting business in the Lake States doing forestry consultant work and is today the largest and longest running consulting forestry business in, in the Lake States. Um, my uh, uncle currently, um, uh, and, and my cousin now, currently uh, own and operate that business. And uh, um, I guess it's maybe more genetic that I got into forestry than anything else, a bit of family tradition. Uh, going way back, uh, my last name loosely translated in German, uh, very loosely means climbing forest. Um, stagger to climb, uh, Walt meaning forest. So you can say it's a bit genetic. Wow, you've got it in your DNA. <laughs> yeah, some might say that. Well, um, DNA, but but did you love it? Did you did you? I guess you know we could say that it's the tradition is amazing, and and being a history buff, I can appreciate tradition. But did you go to school thinking this is the direction you were going? I'm glad you asked that because no, um, I, I absolutely kind of despised forestry growing up. Um, I mean, I, I, I did, did things out, outside. I grew up on some acreage and hunted, fished, um, love cutting down timber, love having campfires, love running around in, in the bush and the trees. Um, but uh, when, I, when I graduated high school, I had different, um, different career paths I wanted to go down, kind of resisting wanted to becoming a forester, uh, actually graduated with a technical diploma in auto repair refinishing and restored a pickup truck of mine while earning that uh, technical diploma. Um, after that was completed, I kind of realized, well, I'm not gonna really make very good money um, painting cars, you know, you gotta put in a lot of effort many years, maybe you could open your own business and be successful. So I actually decided to go to college for political science. Uh, found out that I hated people. <laughs> I would much rather talk to trees. And uh, um, I, was, I was actively working towards that degree in political science, but uh, at a, uh, uh, it was at a transfer college. And at one of the, the transfer days that they had there talking to different universities, um, uh, one of the recruiters from UW Stevens Point was there, saw my last name and said, oh, Stegerwald, you're going to go for forestry, aren't you? And it was at that point in time, I was just like, you know what, uh, you're the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, I'm going to go for forestry. Let's do it. <laughs> That's how I ended up at UW-Stevens Point, met Corey. Um, I think we met at Treehaven, Corey. That was my first uh, semester at UW-Stevens Point. Um, worked for a couple of years professionally after graduating in 2011, the forest management degree. Worked for some county forests at uh, doing forest management your typical boards and cords forestry. Um, found out that I still had a passion to learn. Uh, and in 2013, 
uh, quit a permanent full-time position um, and went to school to earn uh, well, my master's in, in natural resources, emphasizing in wildland fire ecology. Wow. Uh, postgraduate school, I worked uh, for the state of Wisconsin, DNR, um, did some private forestry consulting, and eventually landed on working for the Rough Grouse Society. Um, that brings us here today, uh, which is a non conservation nonprofit, um, focusing on um, forest management and the healthy forest management for abundant wildlife, like our namesake, uh, the rough grouse. I, I love, um, I'm dabbling in uh, forest management right now. We got 200 acres in northern Michigan. You know, like everything up there, it's been logged a million times. It's been beat up. Redwood, uh, the red pines all be taken off. That they're just leaving stumpy fields. It all looks horrible. A couple of our spots, that's some regen that looks pretty good. But um, I like the fact that you know one of the terms you used was conservation. Um, you know, we're playing around with food plots up there uh, for conservation, not just for deer, but for wildlife in general, because they're running out of places to go. So I think that'd be a great avenue if we could kind of, kind of, kind of head towards conservation a little bit and exactly what you're doing for the grouse. And maybe that's something we, anybody, all of us should be doing. Yeah. So, so a big, um, a big proponent of the rough grouse society, you know, if, if I were to kind of describe the rough grouse society in a nutshell, um, it's that we're, we're a, a group of, of individuals, um, conservationists who believe that little trees need hugs too. And a lot of that comes down to, um, again, kind of the namesake of our, our organization, which is the Rough Grouse, which, by the way, we're, we're a dual organization. Um, so we're actually the Rough Grouse Society slash American Woodcock Society. And both of these forest species uh, require young forests as part, of, uh, as part of their ecology. They need young forests to fulfill all, all the, the needs of their life cycles. Um, so we have an organization that is a huge proponent of, of active forest management uh, to create diverse landscapes, meaning that we're, we're really targeting having um, a mixture of, of ages of, forest, of forests. We want young forests, middle-aged forests, and older forests to help support abundant wildlife populations of all kinds. And when we, we speak about conservation, one of the, the big topics that we bring up is, especially in eastern United States, a lot of our forests have become more or less homogenous mm -hmm. um, in that, that a lot of our forests are getting very old, very decadent compared to maybe what they were historically. Um, you know, not just looking at the past hundred years, but the past several thousands of years with uh, humans actively managing these landscapes um, through things like prescribed fire that would create diversity in, on, on the landscape. So we're, we're an organization of, of feisty conservationists that, uh, uh, like I said, at the end of the day, believe that little trees need hugs too. We need to have diverse landscapes to support wildlife. Well, and that's, that's really big to hear because I think when a lot of people hear conservationist, they're thinking the exact opposite, right? Yes, they're, so thinking, they're thinking preservationist. They're thinking preservationist, not conservationist and actually bringing it back to how that stand you know, should be or, or could healthily uh, could be. Yeah, I think that's a major, you know, I wrote preservation down too, because 
when you said conservation, Corey, on a day-to-day for you and I in the urban landscape, urban forestry, it's preservation. Right. This majestic big white oak in someone's backyard that they just can't lose. So we step into a preservation mode. And, and it's the opposite. We're getting rid of everything else around it to save that one specimen. And it could be a little bit opposite in conservation where it may be time for that to go if it's, you know, and then something else can regenerate in that spot. So it, it's, it, it's not that our organization is against, uh, you know, mature old trees. I mean, they have their, their of, of wildlife species that maybe our members aren't passionate about. There's definitely a, a, a need for those type of trees in the as far as what our forest composition looks like now, like I said, especially in the eastern United States, it's rather homogenous. It, it's it's relatively all the same age class. Uh, you know, we're we're talking about uh, eighty to one hundred and twenty year old trees. Um, very little structural diversity as far as different age classes and where those different age classes of timber and trees come together, uh, creating proper edge habitat for wildlife. So when when we look at um, being advocates on the landscape for, for what our forest species love, you know, we're advocates more so for the young forest because we see a need. Now, if it were the opposite and we had too much young forest, uh, we would be advocating the opposite way, saying, well, we need to back off on some of our active management and really have thoughtful planning for the future as far as where we create uh, our future young forest from to support young forest wildlife. Okay. I'm, uh, I'm doing a class tomorrow. I'm presenting at uh, Michigan's uh, fall conference, and we're doing kind of a walk through Belle Isle. Belle Isle is a, now a state park in Michigan. And there's a, a retired, she's probably been retired 15, 20 years, but she was uh, an interpreter with the DNR for her career. And she was talking about the natural... Uh, flora on Belle Isle and the fact that there were seven or eight or nine different oak species naturally on that island at one time in how over the last hundred years, how through insects, diseases, and other things, it's brought it down to maybe three or four now. And you think about how losing four or five different tree species on there, how it affects the ecology um, in a food plot. So understanding not just a young forest, middle-aged forest, and old forest, but type of forest is probably paramount also. Well, like, like I mentioned, the, um, you know, historically speaking, our, our forests in, in North America are very disturbance dependent. And this is, you know, maybe some of the knowledge that I gleaned um, earning my master's degree in wild and fire ecology because uh, part part of that that work that I, I did in graduate school was actually looking at reconstructing historical fire regimes in northern Wisconsin and looking at parallel research across the, the United States where there are researchers, dendrochronologists, trying to reconstruct what historical fire frequencies were on our landscapes. And you know, our, our forests in North America are fire-dependent ecosystems. I mean, the, the fire frequencies may not be what we typically think about looking at prairie ecosystems or our western forests, for example, but our eastern forests definitely did burn and were burned by, by Native American populations and through natural um, ignitions like lightning strikes that maintained 
relatively open landscapes um, and diverse landscapes for, for a wide range of, of uh, flora and fauna. Well, and that's, that's interesting that you brought up the frequency that, that fire would play in the whole ecological, you know, ecological role, the whole ecosystem, how it all plays. I, I was reading a book uh, recently about, it, and it didn't just discuss the timing of that, but it also discussed the intensity at which the fires are burning now. So yeah. what, what, what do you see? You'd think with, you know, with, uh, with more of these, these monoculture stands that, that go a longer time between burns, you'd think that that intensity has been ramped up. At least here in the West, it has. What are you seeing in, in Wisconsin, Minnesota area? Well, uh, it's, it's funny you say that because actually my wife is a wildland firefighter for the Wisconsin DNR, and she's actually up on a wildland fire right now in, in northern Minnesota. Uh, the Greenwood fire, which is, I think it's up to about 40,000 acres right now. Um, she returned, returns tomorrow. Uh, but uh, we, we definitely have a fire dependent ecosystem here in the Lake States. Um, when we look at not just our, uh, our, some of the different tree species we have, like red pine, jack pine, and our oaks, which are known to be uh, fire dependent species. Um, it's really interesting when we start diving into some of the other um, the other tree species and really taking a hard look at, at their fire ecology and what their frequency may have been historically and probably what we should be implementing now as far as uh, fire return intervals. You know, there's, there's, and there's a lot to talk about like, like the, you know, some of the cutting edge um, fire research that's happening out there. Uh, maybe, maybe we could get in, into that a little bit later, but um, you know, to, to your question, as far as, you know, the, the, the changes in our, our fire frequencies, the intensity of our fire frequencies, it's something that I think we're seeing across the board um, being caused from several different fronts. Um, you know, the, the, news, the news will tell you it's climate change, which it is to a, to a large degree. Climate change is playing a major factor, major role in the intensity of our wildland, wildland fires. But there's the other aspect that I kind of talked about with our forest being homogenous, um, our forests are also getting denser. Um, you know, trees or the canopies are much closer together. They're touching one another. Where you think historically with a maintained ecosystem through natural and human caused anthropogenic fire, those tree canopies, especially in the Western United States, were kept very far apart. So the types of fires we're having today um, because of the loss of prescribed fire in the landscape is much, much different than they were historically, um, where natural fires and, and those um, uh, anthropogenic type fires were really creating um, more, more woodlands or pine savanna type conditions instead of closed canopy forests. So when we have a wildland fire happen today, um, that becomes intense because of exacerbated drought conditions caused, brought on by climate change and excessive fuel loads brought on by um, decades and decades of lack of fire. And we have not just fuel loads on the understory um, and the duff layer, we have mid-level fuels uh, that are very high ladder fuels that then bring the fires up into the canopy and cause you know, the, the major fire events that we're seeing. So it, it's like a synergistic effect um, when we talk about um, the, the current fire intensity that we're experiencing with, with uh, wildland fires. It's not just climate change. It's not just how successful the Smoky Bear campaign was at eliminating fire from the landscape. It's a synergistic effect from all different fronts. 
I see Joe's showing us his uh, Smokey Bear t-shirt. I just happen to be wearing it today. <laughs> you knew. Somehow you knew. You know what? There's a <laughs> we, we talk about this a lot with some of our other guests, but we, we, we know there's a vibe. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, we talk about an, an uh, unseen energy between everybody in this industry. And I don't know. I had I, all my, all my t-shirts in my t-shirt pile all have something to do with tree care. If this was just the one today, we, I just must have knew. Well, and had that feeling. That's pretty nice. I'm, I, and I'm wearing an Arborware shirt from <laughs> my collection. But so John, you, you brought up an interesting point. And I imagine as you're trying to conserve, not just preserve, but trying to conserve and trying to restore some of these, uh, these stands back to their natural or more productive conditions, um, what role do you think that climate change, so less precip, warmer temperatures, what role is that going to play as, as the secondary, as, 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 as what rolls in after a fire event just rolled through the stand? Are you going to see, you think, slower, lower? What do you, what do you think? Well, I, I would look at it from, from this perspective, that what do we need to be doing in the forest industry to prepare ourselves for climate change? What yeah. should we be actively doing as professionals to help our forests out? I, th I think that that's a, a better question to ask and a better way to look at it. And first and foremost, I think we need to be looking at diversifying our forests. We, we need, we, like I said, our forests are largely homogenous. Um, when we look at species composition and age class, we need to diversify our, our forests. You know, think about diversifying your portfolio. You need to be diverse because you never know what's going to be expected coming down, down the road. The science can tell us one thing and, and there are kind of bounds on what we're expecting to happen, but we need to be able to prepare for multiple type scenarios that, I ha that happen. So that means diversifying our forests. Um, and a part of that, our oak forests, especially in Wisconsin and the Lake States are getting very, very old, very, very decadent. There's a lot of, of concern about the future of oak forests in the Lake States as it continues to age and, and the red maple forests that are replacing those oak forests pretty rapidly. So part of that diversification means that we need to, as foresters and natural resources professionals, focus on how we maintain as many acres of oak forests as we can going into the future when they're, we're predicted to lose those type of forests. Um, ahead, of, you know, ahead of climate change, we need to be looking at um, our strategies for uh, mitigation. What are our strategies for um, optimization? What are our strategies for conversion? What are our strategies um, you know, across the board? Um, where should we be applying those strategies? Um, we might have different strategies for our ash swamps you know, ahead of uh, species like emerald ash borer and how we're gonna look at, well, do we try to maintain some of this ash acreage in front of uh, emerald ash borer? Do we try to convert some of these acres to different type of species? What is that species that we're going to look at um, that's going to be do better under more severe climate conditions? Mm. Um, and also, you know, believing and trusting in the science as well. You know, lake states, we are predicted to become uh, warmer and wetter. So, you know, it's not necessarily that we're going to become, you know, Oklahoma, but, you know, we might be become... Illinois, 
Iowa. Missouri. Um, so it, it's what what type of forest should we we think about managing in the future? But at the same at the same time, we also have to really recognize that we currently are managing the forest we have now. Right. So in you know some of these effects of climate change are 100 years out. Um, they're 50 years out. There are definite effects right now. But thinking about how we manage trees, we manage timber. You know, we're thinking on 50-year rotations, 100-year rotations, and we need to have thoughtful planning for um, how we do that over the next next hundred years. Yeah, it's kind of it's it's you think about that forest management versus urban forest management. You know, in a lot of municipalities, they'll get a uh, they'll get a grant to plant 20 trees and. Man, the news is all over it. Wow, we planted 20 trees. Woo, the world's changing. And then, but in a bigger picture, I know that Corey, you mentioned it before the old, the old uh, wise tale, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. Can you really plant enough trees? You know, I can you, I, and I'm not trying to be a gloom and doom, but can we really, can we really get ahead of it? And, and how do we plant for the next 50 or 100 years? That's huge. It's a great question. <laughs> I mean, the scariest thing about Wisconsin turning into Illinois is potentially losing the Packers. But the second scariest thing would be, what does that mean for the landscape, right? Well, well, I, I, would, I would pose this, uh, this thing as well, is that, um, you know, climate change is, is one of the threats that we're facing. And, and you know, there, there is... You know, you do see the initiatives of, you know, plant a million trees, plant a billion trees, plant a trillion trees. We still have to have thoughtful planning as far as where we're going to be putting trees as a, as a climate change mitigation strategy, as a, as a way to absorb carbon from the atmosphere. We don't want to, to rush into a scenario where we're saying we're going to take this landscape, this acreage and plant a timber when there might very well be ecological consequences to doing that. You know, some of the most endangered um, and, and threatened uh, ecosystems and habitats on the planet are prairie and savanna ecosystems. So are we going to convert our, pr our prairies and savannas to closed canopy timber because it absorbs carbon from the atmosphere? Mm. I mean, to me, that that's a scenario where we're, we have, we have two negatives. You know, we should be more focused on how to reduce our carbon footprint and having thoughtful landscape management where it's appropriate. Um, now, when, when we when we think about um, you know, climate climate mitigation, climate strategies, definitely forests are important uh, in in that equation. But Corey, you brought up a good point. You know, Wisconsin turning to Illinois, you know, it, it's not necessarily you know uh, the climate. I think is the bigger bigger issue in front of us immediately. It it is parcelization. Mm. It's our forest being converted to other uses. It's being converted to parking lots, housing developments, and the loss of forest we might see through that. Uh, and the loss of, of forested acres that could be part of a climate solution. And that could be managed by professionals such as yourself and others who, who actually have this as a focus. And, and I, I put on top of that, managed for a wide diversity of reasons, purposes, you know, managing for, for wildlife, managing for timber production, managing for water and air quality. Oh, that, social tropism. Yeah, social tropism for sure. Well, John, if if you could get a message out, we've got a button up here in a second, a couple minutes. If if you could push something out to the masses, either a big picture item, 
that people who who aren't they're not in they're not going to the conferences or the talks that you're going um, they're not they're not part of the associations you're part of if you could push a big topic out to maybe other tree and landscape lovers what would it be I would say get involved with with a, a conservation organization um, you know Rough Grouse Society, you can go to roughgrousesociety.org, get involved with us. You know, there, there's the plug for our organization. But I, I, I think, you know, where you're, where you're talking about, Corey, is that, um, you know, if you're not a professional, you're not going to the, the professional seminars, you're not, a, you're not trained, you don't have, you're not credentialed or degreed, you don't keep up on certificates, where do you get that knowledge disseminated from? You know, what type of source are you getting that type of knowledge from? You know, uh, I, I really found, found my, my niche in, in Rough Grouse Society um, as a as a traditional hook and bullet group, you know, a, a traditional hook and bullet conservation group, um, you know, focused on the North American model of wildlife conservation, which is basically that if we manage wildlife uh, for for hunting purposes, um, it has some uh, extra value that generates tax revenue to help support um, managing that 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 wildlife species, those wildlife populations. I found found kind of my niche with this organization, um, and I think there's there's different levels in, in the research. The social research supports this. Where there's different levels for people to become becoming conservationists, and for a lot of people in the the hook and bullet realm, you know, you might get out. Um, I'll give this example. You know, think about your first time fishing. You know, you weren't fishing for muskie your first time out. You were fishing for bluegill. You know, you were going with mom and dad, grandpa, and you're fishing for, for bluegills. And the first hurdle in front of you was just getting one. You know, you wanted to get that first fish. And once you got that first fish underneath you, there's a, then it became about the number. You wanted to get a bunch of fish, a bunch of different type of fish. So you, you got past second hurdle, you caught a whole bunch of bluegills. Maybe you started catching crappie. Then it started to become about the trophy, you know, for, for a lot of folks in that, that hook and bullet realm. You know, you started going after your trophy buck or you started going after um, your trophy muskie. After you got your, got your trophy, you're satisfied, you maybe moved on to, um, for really not, not even focusing on, on the fish anymore, you started focusing on your method. How are you going, to, going about uh, catching that fish? You know, maybe you started tying your own flies. Maybe you just got into fly fishing. Um, maybe you got into tr traditional archery. You're, you're using a traditional bow, but maybe you got further down that rabbit hole and you're making your own arrows. You're, you're, you're flint mapping your own points. Um, you're no longer just fly fishing. You're using a, a horse hair, a horse hair um, line bamboo fishing rod. Um, so it became about the method. And I, th I think for a lot of people, they have the opportunity through a traditional hook and bullet group to go through those steps where eventually it doesn't become about the method, doesn't become, become about the fish or the bird, the, the deer, it becomes about how do I conserve these, these animals, these organ, these organisms, and how do I tell other people how to do it? And that's where I think people kind of graduate into a sportsman, graduate into a conservationist, at least going through that, that more traditional hook and bullet group, like RGS uh, type route. Um, but there are definitely other options out there if that's not, not your bailiwick. Um, but I, I, I think, I think not professional, Conservation nonprofits are a great way for folks who are not in, in the natural resources realm uh, to get engaged. Awesome. I, I, like, I like that. I, I like that avenue, John. That's very well said. I started playing around with 
deer food plot management and it it did the same thing now it's not about hunting anymore it's about it's about getting the the deer something better to eat and making the habitat better for them so i love exactly what you said and um as we wrap up i just want to ask your permission to use your uh, little trees need hugs too because i'm going to use it tomorrow in my presentation because i uh the trees that we're planting are part of Bob Ross's Happy Little Trees program through the Michigan DNR. So I'm going to use it tomorrow. And I, I can't say, but thank you very much for being on tonight. Let me well, I, I think I can give, give you permission to use that tomorrow. Um, but, it, you know, if you'd like to learn more about Rough Cross Society, uh, any of your listeners, like I said, go to roughcrosssociety.org. I think we actually have bumper stickers that say Little Trees Need Hugs too uh, for sale on our website. So you can get yourself one of those. I will dig them up. I will find them. Awesome. Really from a part of the industry that you might not have spent much time in, but hopefully you do shortly, your message and the conversation that we had today uh, certainly will be preserved in history and passed forward. So really, thank you so much, John. Um, go pointers, go pack, go, and uh, really enjoyed having you on. Hey, great topic today. Yes, yeah, so lots of good information. Yeah, probably one of our best yet. If you enjoyed the podcast, or have topics you would like to discuss, please send them to discoveringforestry at gmail.com. And please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. Thanks guys uh, for tuning in. Until next time, I'm Joe. And I'm Corey. Signing, Signing out. out.